Welcome to the History of California podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Maddox. Today we have Dr. Andrew Schenken on the show. Dr. Schenken is an architectural and urban historian with an interest in how cultural constructions of memory shape the built environment. He also works on the unbuilt and paper architecture, theme landscapes, heritage and conservation planning, as well as traditions of representation in 20th century architecture and planning, keywords in architecture and American culture, consumer culture and architecture. He is interested in historiography, particularly of architectural history, and the intersection of popular culture and architecture. Since this is too much for one person, he is currently looking to clone himself. Professor Schenken's first book, 1940X, examines how American architects and planners on the American home front anticipated the world after the war. Broadly speaking, it is a cultural history of American architecture, planning, and consumer culture in this formative and strained moment for the architectural profession. His second book, Into the Void, Pacific, looks at the architecture of the neglected 1939 San Francisco World's Fair. His third book, The Everyday Life of Memorials, came out from Zone Books in 2022. He is currently the Director of American Studies, Faculty Curator of the Environmental Design Archives on the Faculty Advisory Committee at the Townsend Center for the Humanities and the Global Urban Humanities. He has a joint appointment in American Studies. We dig into a lot in this conversation. If you like to think deeply about architecture and urban space, there is no better episode for you. Please enjoy our conversation. I have a number of questions to start about the discipline. Can you talk about some of the tools needed that a traditional historian might not have that's required to do the work that you do? In some sense, I'm trained exactly like a historian would be. So I'm an archivally based historian. I dig up rare materials that have not seen the light of day in a long time, and I use them to readjust or revise the way we think about the past. So it's about story making, just like historians do. And, but I think architectural historians are somewhere between historians and art historians because we were interested in visual issues and spatial issues that often historians are not interested in or attuned to or trained to look at. So there are, there are ways in which the way the world behaves materially, spatially, visually don't come out so much if you're a textually based historian. So I'm interested in primarily in, in the work that I do that's architectural history, because I have a kind of second life as an American studies person also. I'm looking at the ways in which space is a player in shaping the course of events in the world or attitudes, mentalities in the world. And so I'm attuned to those things. And that makes that makes my life different often than historians because I often come up with stuff by walking around in cities, touching buildings, seeing buildings, seeing how people interact in, in the world and cities. And so there's a kind of fieldwork aspect to what I do uh, that's just like a curious human asking questions like, why is the sidewalk this deep here? Or why is the bench here? Or why is this unlit? And how did this come to be that we've chosen to light things the way we do? Or, you know, the behavior of the built environment is observable, not just in archives, but very much so in the world around us. Yeah. 
when you're thinking about telling a story about a building, a city, a street, a landscape, how do you decide who the protagonist in that story is? I usually let the protagonist announce themselves. So sometimes it's a human and I do search for humans behind the making of things, but oftentimes there are not discrete individuals who have made decisions. Sometimes it's more of a vernacular set of forces that come together to shape the world. And I want to be attuned to the, the potential authorlessness of reality. Sometimes things become some way because there are many hands and it's hard to pick them out as personalities. There might not be a, um, a willful brain behind it, let's say. Yeah. So if you're thinking about a building, I mean, you have maybe an architect that designed it, a construction company or a builder, some end users that use it. Do you always start kind of chronologically or do you maybe start from the end user and then kind of work back to see how that matched with design and thought? I follow the sources usually. Yeah. So first of all, I try to think really clearly about how I might find evidence. And then I yet let the evidence direct me. There's also the client. There are also policies, uh, land use policies. There's historical precedents. There's, you know, the place itself that might direct the way things play out on a, on a given spot. So there are all sorts of there are mentalities that shape the way we do things that are, that we inherit, uh, that we might not even know we inherit. So there are all sorts of uh, elements that play into the shaping of that narrative and the way they play out the ordering is only partly up to me some of it has to do with what remains in terms of evidence well, one of the things that we've kind of come back to time and time again as a theme in california history on this show is how uh, quickly california urbanized uh, does that make it more or less interesting for you as an architectural historian and urban historian to look at california this kind of how fast it developed relative to other places in the united states yeah so i i grew up in arizona which is very similar it also changed very fast and has changed very fast over our, my lifetime when i when i was a kid i remember passing signs that said entering Phoenix population 200,000. And now it's one of the largest cities in the country. So I grew up in a, in a city that's very similar to in pace of development to the California experience. I think it makes it interesting. And one of the theories of, of change in modernity is that rapid development creates new stresses and tensions and anxieties and alters the way we perceive change. And I do think change is frightening for lots of people. So I think that there's a kind of anxiety-based theory of change that is intriguing, but also troublesome. I don't want to lean on anxiety as my mode of, of thinking about change all the time. But it is interesting to me that there are different stresses. Say, For instance, the great model is Germany industrialized much later and more rapidly than, say, England. And that changed the way it related to modernity. And some people talk about the ways in which it, it has been one of the protagonists of the most violent century in history, the 20th century, at the hands of that late, late and quick industrialization. I'm not one of those people, but I, I follow that logic. I understand it. It's stressful to change. And so, yeah, the stresses on California are, especially recently with the various booms and busts of the Silicon Valley, present all sorts of dizzying vectors for understanding our lives and how we're, we're, we're 
distorted by these events that are not of our making, often as in, certainly not as individuals. And it seems, I mean, when I had Dr. Mitchell Schwartzer on the show about his book, Hellatown, one of the things we talked about is that they're always, you're, there's always going to be choices made. And sometimes if you kind of look back at a lot of the fights that happened in New York City uh, around what Robert Moses was going to do, there was intact neighborhoods uh, that had developed in a certain way organically, and there were still choices that had to be made. And in California, it feels like there's a lot of choices made fast, and then they, you had to kind of work through, like, how do we uh, uh, fix, quote-unquote, some of the space so it makes it more functional for its end user. And so it, it just, you know, it does feel like, you know, there's always just going to be choices made just in different circumstances and from a different particular point of view, whether you're trying to adjust something to make it make more sense, it's still just a choice, however fast things developed. Do you agree with that assessment in some ways? Yeah, I think there's a lot of improvisation, obviously, a lot of muddling through, and we're presented with circumstances that are never ideal. We had to, as you say, make choices. And we're not always doing it with the long term in mind, because so many people have short term motivations, let's say, incentives, especially within the capitalist system, but also politicians. They have a certain amount of time to do things. So for one of the great examples of this is that asphalt is much cheaper than concrete for laying roads, but it lasts a lot less time. And if you were to think 20 or 30 years down the road, you'd make more roads out of concrete uh, because they'd last longer and it would be cheaper in the long run. But in the short term, it's much cheaper to make asphalt. So we have an asphalt world. I'm not saying concrete's great because concrete comes with its own problems, right. but but it's just one of these very small ways in which the built environment really is altered by the, the scale, or I should say span of the near future versus the long-term future. Hmm. I have a number of friends that work in urban and city planning. How do you think, and these uh, sometimes differences between people that are closely related in disciplines can be really stark. How, how might you look at the world differently than someone that's, say, like an urban planner working for a city planning department? Right. So I have a great luxury of not having to make any decisions about the world. Okay. And I should put that up front. I can step back from it. I can be dispassionate. I, I have the clarity of hindsight because I'm looking at things in the past. I don't have to deal with people. Usually, most of my protagonists are dead. So I have great luxuries, and and I would not want to understate that at all. So if I were an architect comparing myself to an urban planner, that might be a more one-to-one comparison. And I think practitioners have to make real-time decisions that are much more difficult and much more hard-boiled than the types of things that I do. I have so many false starts that just don't go anywhere, and it doesn't matter. It really doesn't matter. You can't do that as a as a planner, you have to bring the goods and you do it as best you can with whatever resources you have, which are usually, they're usually under-resourced, right? And they don't have as much time as they need and they just have to do their best within that time period. So I, I think it's a tough comparison, actually. Okay. The, the work of a historian is glacial and the work of planners and architects is really speedy and and. They just have to figure out things quickly, you know? Yeah, they have a lot of variables at work that they have to try and assess and evaluate in order to make a decision in the moment. And I, yeah. I, I'm i sure that that, you know, 
some you know hindsight being 2020 for someone that's working in the archives and seeing what we see now versus someone that's trying to do it in the moment i'm, I'm sure it's its own challenges i have um yeah. a quotation i kind of want you to respond to because i think it'll set some kind of arcs and themes for what we're going to talk about i'm yeah. sure you'll recognize it and it's uh, we miss out on a deeper understanding of the built environment when we endlessly categorize it do you agree with that uh, statement well categories are fraught they're troubled and there's there's lots of consideration about historical categories, art historical categories. And I I don't know any art or architectural historians or historians who aren't skeptical of categories. I also don't know any that don't use them in some way. So categories are a shorthand for helping us communicate. And um, to that end, they're awfully useful, as long as we don't forget that they're categories and that all categories are frayed at the edges or permeable or porous anyway. And as soon as you establish a category, you do it usually through force of example. And examples never fit. There's no, in the game of pars pro toto, the part fitting the whole, there's no part that ever fits the whole. The whole is a, you know, is a fabrication. It's a Kantian fabrication that we use to understand the world. So it, it's a way of structuring thought. And without it, we might not be able to have certain kinds of conversations. And some of the categories are beautiful inventions. They help us think through things and then we can discard them at some point. So modern architecture was a category, for instance, that congealed at some point and everyone knew even as it was being created, even in say 1932 when international style was coined as a term by Philip Johnson and Henry Russell Hitchcock, they knew it was a uh, funny term and they didn't like it <laughs> and they were up to something with it and they knew it wouldn't stick but it was still a way of communicating so if we think of it just that way then then it's useful yeah so it's i had a music historian on recently a musicologist and we were talking about genres between musical genres and kind of said something similar to what you're saying which is they're useful to an extent and then once you dig into the weeds they disappear and that's okay. And I, I agreed with that. I think that makes a lot of sense. Last one before we jump into one of your books, and this is another kind of urban planner because I'm trying to think about your perspective and what it, what what your what your work could lend to someone working in spaces today. If a historical preservationist read your work and kind of took it as dogma about seeing how the world, which is, it's a crude question, but we'll just go with it for a second. How, how do you think they would ap- approach trying to preserve buildings in California? It really depends which, which of my books. So my first book probably wouldn't do anything for preservationists. I don't think they'd want to read it. There would be no purpose. Nor would my second book. My third book, the one that just came out last year, Every and that's what I was thinking memorials. about in, in, in I see. Yeah. Yeah. So the everyday life of memorials takes a how should we categorize it? It's a it's a very distant view of what we should do about these memorials. And it's a laissez-faire view. It's let's when I said distant, I kind of mean long view. So when I was I was confronted in the publication process by two of the peer reviewers who thought that between the first draft and the draft that they saw, that the world had changed because of the fear over uh, Confederate monuments 
and the rise of Black Lives Matter. And they thought that that was a game changer in how we think about monuments. And they wanted me to address that in the book, which I had not done in that in the draft that they read. And the editor said, if you don't address it, you're going to have to address why you're not addressing it. <laughs> and so I thought about it a while and I decided that the book takes on a swath of history that goes back to the French Revolution. And surely the French Revolution was a pivotal moment in the creation of our relationship to monuments and memory in the past. And if we can forget the French Revolution, if it no longer is hot for us, which it's not, people pass by sites of the French Revolution that are monumentalized, and they mean nothing. You can take a selfie, you can meet at one and eat a hot dog at one and not they probably wouldn't need a hot dog, a croissant at one, and not think twice about the bloody revolution, this event that was so important in the formation of modernity, then we can do that with Black Lives Matter too. So I wanted to think 200 years from now, will we really be thinking about George Floyd? Is this really such a pivot? And I decided it's not. I decided it's really important and it's really foremost in our minds. And I'm on board with what's happening now. I think it's really important to, for places to consider whether they should have Confederate monuments in their midst and the power that these monuments might have and the, the ways in which they're operating. People should be thinking about it and deciding what to do locally. But I didn't think it was like the French Revolution, or I should say it is like the French Revolution. It could disappear. It might not be top of the mind very long, in fact. Yeah. Look, we have one thing happening after another that brings our minds to one tragedy after another. And it could be that this looks like a blip at some point. So I didn't want to overemphasize it. Now, what yeah. does that have to do with preservation? Well, a lot, actually. Because if we want to think in 200-year spans or 1,000-year spans, then we might deal with the built environment differently than if we're thinking more myopically. Yeah. And I, I often wonder if, you know, and this gets to kind of the like artists and the artwork, you know, I mean, it, you know, there really isn't a limit at the subject matter. It could also be the person that designed it. It seems complicated. I, I thought that book was really prescient in Shadow of Statues, A White Southerner Confronts History, the former mayor of New Orleans and thinking about the mm -hmm. Confederate statues that are across his city and thinking about, you know, kind of pathos and, you know, but also history and how, how to how to mitigate all of that. Let's jump into World War II, California planning. What does the X refer to in the title of your book and why did you choose that? Right. So 1940X is not a term I invented. It's a term invented by the architectural press during World War II to refer to the unknown date of the end of the war. And I think it was invented either by a guy named George Nelson, who was a, an architect who became quite important as a furniture designer, believe it or not. But at the time, he was an editor at Architectural Forum or by the, the publisher, who is a guy named Howard Myers. And it was part of it was part of magazine copy to help people think about what might happen after the war. And the conditions of the war were devastating for magazines for various reasons, uh, especially architecture. Architects were out of work. They were desperate. Firms were closing. Small firms were closing. The nature of architecture might have been changing in ways that they thought um, could put the architect out of business substantially for a long time. And so they had to think about what they would put in their magazines. And one of the things was anticipatory designs about the future. And they wanted to create some sense of, of what that moment was. And they created 1940X to 
to crystallize it. 1940X is that moment when they could build again, design and build again. And they began to think about how to do that. And that became, it's an editorial strategy, let's say, and a commercial strategy too, because and advertisers caught on to it and started using it in their advertisements. So the, the roof of 1940X or the copper flashing of 1940X, hotels of 1940X, and so on and so forth. Have we had a period of optimism in architectural design like that, where there was just kind of creative flow and kind of related to that? Can you see optimism in a in a design? Like, is it like, can you identify an optimistic design, if you will? You know, I know that's kind of a strange way to word it, but I, I'm I'm curious, like, visually, how how you look at something and, and kind of draw out tones. Yeah. So there are two questions. The the first part is, are there moments like that? And there yeah. are. I think there are moments that inspire architects to think more optimistically about what's possible. Changes in technology do that. Changes, social changes do that. Economic changes do that. And there are changes in mentality that are attached to all those things and others that also fuel the architect's imagination. So there, there were moments in almost every decade that I can think of where that happened, even in dark decades in the 1930s, where there are dystopian views, there are also excite, exciting things happening because of the ways in which the federal government was rechanneling funding into building projects. So the New Deal could be very exciting. So it's not necessarily a one-to-one match with the darkness of the times. And yeah. look, World War II was tremendously dark, but 1940X was tremendously hopeful. So there's that. And yeah, I think there are some designs where it's quite clear that they're they're trying to channel that optimism. I was just looking at the Albert Fry's Illuminaire House, which was exhibited in 1932 at the Museum of Modern Art. It was built in 1931. And one of the one of the ways it was shown was through a Scientific American article where they showed a kind of what would it cut away of the house to show the ways in which its its innards worked. So a kind of diagram of how modern it was. And the word future was written right above it. So yeah, often the future is engaged as a way of showing that kind of optimism. Can you see it in the actual design of that? I think you can. I think there's something about the the cutaway, almost like a scientific diagram that suggests that this house has something special about it technologically, that it is of the future, that it's changing the world. So I, I think you can read that, not always, but I think it's possible. One of the motifs through the book is planning. And obviously when World War II ended, we had an explosion across the nation, but particularly in California of recently married people looking to buy houses. And then we get kind of this building boom. Is that a, a tragic story from an architectural perspective of like, we had all these optimism, great ideas, and then we're just, you know, hit in the face with reality and we have to start slapping. I mean, I used to live, when I lived in San Francisco, I lived kind of near Ocean Avenue on that side of the South San Francisco. And I remember I would look out the front windows of my house and see those, I think there was a song about it, those little uh, boxes on the hills that kind of, you know, and I, I did a lot of research and wanted to understand where they came from. And, you know, looking at that post-war period and all those, you know, track, track homes being developed, you know, I think it made sense. But from your perspective, what did, what did we lose in some ways? Oh, I don't know. I think that there are so many ways of reading this, right? So for people who, for whom having access to a house, to owning a house, or even renting an affordable house, it's not a tragedy at all. It's just the opposite. 
It is buying into the American dream. It's rooting themselves in the world. It's creating equity for themselves. It's starting a family. There's all sorts of positive ways in which a house that we might look at and think is it's very drab and ugly. And maybe it's part of a sea of houses that are built without adequate infrastructure, or adequate schools or something like that. But at the same time, I do think it's it's a triumph for the people who live there sometimes just to I have I mean, I that. live in a track home, you know, it's my first yeah. home was a track home and that would allow me to yeah, buy a Yeah, I live in a... I live in a dumb little house that was built during World War II, and I'm sure it wasn't, it's not a very nice house, but I'm awfully glad to be housed in the Bay Area. So there's that perspective. And if you, you know, sometimes when I think about what could have been, that these could have been better designed, there could be better infrastructure, that they could be conceived of within larger communities of people. yeah, it's, it looks more like a tragedy from that perspective that it's done without as much forethought as could have been done, that it's not, that our world does not uh, plan ahead as much, does irk me sometimes. And I, I wish for that. But but that kind of utopian urge, I do think it's utopian to, to think that way or quasi-utopian. That's, I think, really balanced against the first thing that I said, that people... I don't know. I guess I'm put in mind to a J.B. Jackson article, John Brinkerhoff Jackson, who was curious about why so many people were abandoning farmhouses in the 20th century for track houses or for even for trailers. And the trailer had modern bathrooms, modern electricity, modern everything. It was an easier life. The farmhouse was really hard to adapt. It was cold and drafty and hard to fix up and often was wood burning or coal burning. And it was isolated. So his answer was that that these track homes or these mobile homes were actually upgrades for them. People looked forward to it. And so, yeah, it could, now we can look back and think nostalgically about the farmhouse. And wouldn't it be great to have that land and live in something like that? And But some of that's nostalgic and it's, it's retrospection. Yeah. Well, and I, I think th- that way about these track homes, too. Uh, you know, when I look at Levittown, we see the unrelieved monotony of the cookie cutter houses, the sprawl. The s- sprawl creates a set of spatial relationships that are clearly bad for the environment, I think. So if we want to think of this in terms of carbon load, it's a tragedy for sure. But if we think of it from the individual's point of view, it's it doesn't doesn't compute quite the same way. I mean, obviously, in California, the subtext here is the kind of yimby nimby debates and, you know, yeah. de, uh, you know, uh, trying to get rid of some of the regulations and rules for building and make it build more efficiently. Obviously, there's a trade-off there. I, I You kind of mentioned something that I was going to ask you, which is kind of like in California, how urban theorists responded to this explosion of building what was what was kind of the sentiment around how they viewed it did they did they kind of lean one direction and you know I mean we were talking about the 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 tragic side in terms of you know pre-planning but also the positives of people need homes people need a place yeah. to live so how did did their pendulum swing kind of one way or another believe it or not I'm less expert on this than I should be so a couple things come to mind and I hope that they're relevant the first is that there are many Californians Californians. So yeah. there's SoCal and NorCal, and they they begin dividing in how they think about things in the 
first third of the 20th century, Cal, SoCal wins. LA becomes the dominant city. But until the ni- until maybe the mid 20s, it wasn't clear that it would be. Mm. But for various reasons, LA wins. And the population disparity between LA and San Francisco makes it impossible for San Francisco to catch up. And that changes the way it can approach its larger regional planning. So here in the Bay Area, for instance, there were a group of people who got together who thought comprehensively about planning and they thought about it in an interdisciplinary way. One of the groups that they formed was called Telesis, T-E-L-E-S-I-S. And Telesis was formed by a range of architects, landscape architects and urban planners who wanted to have a synthetic, comprehensive view of the built environment to work in a collegial, collaborative way that allowed them to think in terms of resources, both environmental and and material resources, and to plan in a very methodical, deliberate way and comprehensively. And it's why we have a regional system like the BART, which is full of problems, but we would never be able to build the BART today. It is the product of a kind of ideology of cooperation and collaboration across a region. There's regional planning is really hard to have have take effect today. And and I can give you an example about that. Recently, maybe 10 years ago, there was a vote in Berkeley to raise the level of buildings to to a higher level so that they could densify, which was has been the rage for quite a quite a while. And I was talking to my dean at the time about why I voted against the densification measure. And my reasoning was it it's done piecemeal. It's not done regionally. So for instance, it doesn't make sense to raise the levels in Berkeley and not think about it in the other cities around here, like Richmond and Albany and El Cerrito and all the other places along the BART. And I think it should be considered regionally. She said, you made a mistake. It's never going to be considered regionally. So we have to do what we can in our local environments. And she was, she's, of course, she was right. Uh, but I'm also right. And I do think we, we lose something by not thinking capaciously the way Telesis did and got there actually by making that the subway system. When the LA made its subway system, I thought, no way, this flies in the face of the spatial realities of LA. How do you make an underground for a city that's built for cars? It doesn't make any sense. But it did make sense and it's used. Phoenix did the same thing. They made a light rail. I never thought it would work. So I'm just, I'd be a really bad urban planner, a really bad regional planner. I think that I just didn't understand the the relationships of things. But San Francisco, I think, could do a lot better regionally. I really do. And that is an ideology, right? What Telesis had a perspective on things that they thought, there was a virtue in thinking comprehensively and thinking in a broad regional scale. And that I think is missing today. Well, it's why we I, can't get the, the high speed rail, right? All the way from San Francisco to LA. We just cannot pull off big visionary projects like that. Yeah. I mean, one of the best books I've read on that recently was getting big things done. I forget the name of the author, but it was a, a planner from a Scandinavian country. who was looking at mega projects across the world and, he has a number of variables that he pointed to in the high-speed rail. And I will attest, I was also skeptical of underground rail until my partner had to commute from our house in Pasadena to Children's in Hollywood and would take the gold line. And I very much enjoyed it. And I was uh, not a believer until I got on it. Last thing on kind of sprawl and track homes, 
one one name that I didn't know when I lived in San Francisco in the sunset was Henry Dolger, who I became familiar with after a while. How how do you view the sunset in terms of architectural design? Those the density questions that we've been looking at. I, I spent a number of years living out there in the midst of the fog and the gloom on those endless yeah. streets. How how do we think about the legacy of that built environment? Some of those neighborhoods are lovely. And I do think some of them operate as neighborhoods. I have friends who grew up there who have a fond connection with it. I do think that if the fine grain of some of the neighborhoods is works quite well. So especially when there were corner stores that were affordable, where families could run those corner stores, so there was local commerce, it operated a little bit like some East Coast neighborhoods like that, right? Where there's pretty high density, but very local commerce for the things you needed on a daily basis. You'd have to do bigger shops, of course. But the supermarket was not so much a reality when those things were laid out. Supermarket is a phenomenon of the late 20s and really especially the post-war period. So one set of fine-grained built urban structures had to be accommodated by a set of economics, economic shifts that really made it hard to work with. I think the weather patterns in that part of San Francisco are also <laughs> determinative. If there were not fog there, a lot of fog there, I think it would be a spectacular place to live. And yet the fog also creates, is a presence unto itself and it creates something lovely. There are moments of fog there that are palpable and you know, visceral. So I, yeah, I'm, I'm not against that, that area. There are pockets of it that really work as a kind of urbanism there. And I do think that it's flex has enough flexibility to be used in new ways. There are wide sidewalks often, wide enough streets to alter the street patterns a little bit. I do think things could be could happen there that are interesting. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you don't truly understand the Carl Sandburg poem about fog until you live in the sunset. I think that's a requisite to really understand that poem. I do yeah. want to make a transition into into the void Pacific now. Um, okay. I why were there two world fairs in the U.S. At, in 1939? Because the boosters of two different cities prevailed upon Roosevelt to let that happen. Okay. And I do think it was part of the New Deal effort to stimulate economics. New York and San Francisco both applied. Roosevelt thought it was a good idea to have two of them. And they don't compete very much. People don't go, some people go across country, but really they're two regional world's fairs. New York's much bigger, so it's perhaps more than regional. But mm -hmm. San Francisco's was regional. And that's, it was the first time that happened. It may be the only time it happened, although around 1915, there was one in San Diego as well as in San Francisco. So closely, closely one followed closely on the heels of the other. That's why. I, yeah. I just think these are economic considerations in a moment of depression. Can you share a little bit about who uh, Bernard Maybeck was? I, he's a very important person in, in the history of design and architecture around the Bay Area, and I, and more broadly as well. And I, um, I don't know if pe enough people know his his name and uh, what what he did. Yeah, I'm glad you brought him up. I think it, had he been a New York or Chicago architect, he'd be in the pantheon. <laughs> yeah. And I don't know that he quite makes the pantheon. He was a restlessly creative designer, architect, who was trained in Paris, who 
had a really incredible incredible education in the history of styles and could design them seemingly in his sleep but he was also synthetic with them so he was not stylistically a doctrinaire at all and he came out here and also kind of went native so he incorporated shingle into his work and he incorporated vernaculars from the united states into his work readily around the turn of the century and he also was important for training other architects. He set up a kind of studio for training them. They taught at Berkeley before there was even an architecture department. He was teaching people. So some of the early trained architects of the Bay Area locally went through his, his training. And so in his buildings, you'll see a combination of Parisian design philosophies, vernacular stuff picked up in California, experiments in technology, use of factory-made materials combined with things that look high style. As I said, he was restlessly creative and I'm a big admirer of his work. He was also an, an unusual guy. He was a bohemian. He was, I think, a vegetarian. He dressed unusually. Yeah. So he's hard to pin down and that's another reason why he might not be easy to lodge in the brain. What what are some what are some structures that he designed that people would recognize? Well, the ones in San Francisco that everyone knows, or the one in San Francisco that everyone knows, is the Palace of Fine Arts, which was for the nineteen fifteen exhibition. It was meant as a temporary building. It's since been recast and rebuilt out of more permanent materials. And the one out here in Berkeley is the First Church of Christ Scientists, which is a masterpiece. It is one of the I don't know if I've seen that. Best, I don't know if I've seen that. One where... of the, it's it's on Bowditch, right okay. across from People's Park. Oh, okay. It's in bad shape, but people are taking care of it as much as they can. It, it could use an infusion of cash, but it is one of the masterpieces of American architecture. Bar none, it is really up there. Certainly one of the most important, 100 most important buildings in the country. It is breathtaking and full of interesting references, medievalizing references, but it's made out of concrete. He buries some of the HVAC system in massive concrete piers. He's at his best there. He uses factory sash windows in a church, which is very unusual for 1910, that period. So he's experimenting in ways that some of the masters of the early pioneers, I should say, of the modern movement in Europe are doing, but he's doing it here. And it's almost unknown outside of you know, tight architectural circles. I see. Yeah, and lots of houses in the hills out here that are endlessly fascinating. Mm. I the, the theme of the World Fair was a pageant of the Pacific. And I know that one of the things you emphasize in your book is regionalism. And there's been other people that have talked about kind of a more, oh, I don't even know how to turn this, cosmopolitan imperialism. Why, why did you choose to emphasize regionalism? And why is that an important theme for you? Some of this comes from a body of scholarship that's not mine. So there's a geographer here at Berkeley named Gray Brecken who talks about the, the capital, capitalist imperial reach of San Francisco. And in the early 20th century cities, and in the 19th century too, cities were vying for control of large regions. Think of Chicago, for instance, Kansas City trying to do the St. Louis, all through the, all through the country this was happening. Uh, even in the early 19th century, where New York and Philadelphia were vying for some sort of economic control of the of the pro 
production of the Midwest by laying canals out there. New York won that battle, but Philly could have. And Baltimore was in on that too at that point. Now, mind you, in 1800, New York was a city of 60,000 people. So it's quite a bit different. So it's, San Francisco was doing that. And by the 30s, it had lost, more or less lost out to, to LA, but it had not lost out for regional dominance in Northern California. California is large enough that if you control the region around Northern California, you still have a lot to choose from. And the Pacific was part of that region. So if if San Francisco could have become the dominant airport, it thought as the world moved from sea shipping, they thought to aeronautics, then it could in fact become the dominant city again on the West Coast. So there was a lot at stake and they, right before the World's Fair, just a couple of years before, the first Trans-Pacific flight took place. Somebody flew all the way from the West Coast to Hawaii. They crash landed, but they made it. And at the same time that the fair was being planned, there were floating airports. So Germany had put decommissioned a warship and turned it into a floating airport. So the idea that you could shrink the seas somehow um, was on their minds. They didn't know that airplanes would be able to make it all the way easily. Airplanes like that didn't quite exist. The war made that happen, but it was on their minds. So the, the seas were shrinking and the idea that they could somehow have economic control of the Pacific, all, all of Asia and Latin America through, through a great airport, that was on the minds of the business leaders of San Francisco. So it, it was a little bit of cha-ching, a little bit of money on the mind, but also political and economic power in, in a more general way. Hmm. When I first moved to San Francisco, I got a job as uh, working at my university's cafeteria, and I would sometimes have to deliver stuff to Treasure Island. But I remember the first time I drove and I had to take that hard turn to turn off onto Treasure Island. I'm sure you're familiar with it on the Bay Bridge. Yeah. And <laughs> how terrified I was. And also so intrigued and fascinated. What, how, how do you think it would have changed the Bay Area if Treasure Island had become an airport? I think it would be defunct as an airport now. Because it's just too yeah. hard to, to, to manage that traffic and flow? Or what do you think? Yeah, part of it's that. Part of it is that the larger planes needed a longer runway and the bridges are in the way. And it turns out when you take off out of an airport, you have to go into the wind. You don't go against the wind. So it was pointed the right direction, but they'd more or less have to fill in the bay to make it work, I think. And there were plans to do that. There were actually naval plans to fill in the bay uh, because the bay was so disregarded as a natural resource. But I'm glad that didn't happen. They were right not to not to expand that into the international airport. I think they understood quickly that it was just never going to work as an international airport. And um, Mills Field turned into SFO eventually. It's a better located place in terms of being able to expand. There's landfill at, at uh, SFO too. A lot of that is built on former former wetlands. What do you think Arthur Brown Jr. was trying to impart through the Tower of the Sun? What was what was the message in that building, quote unquote? I'm going to get in trouble. I think part of it is he was trying to impart his greatness as an architect. Arthur Brown Jr. is a complicated figure, more complicated than I think the biographies. There's a really nice biography of him by a guy named Jeff Tillman called Progressive Classicist. 
Brown, so this is a long-winded answer. Is that okay? Of course. Yeah, so so Brown is a, a local kid who trains here at Berkeley and then goes to Paris. And he's very Parisian in his outlook. He goes to the Ecole de Beaux-Arts. His confrères, as he calls them there, are lifelong friends. And I've read many of his letters to those folks from the 1920s on. He was at the top of his game right after the turn of the century through about the 1930s, through the Depression, the beginning of the Depression. And he designs um, a building for the 1915 World's Fair, the Horticulture Hall. It's a success. He's one of the leading architects in the Bay Area. He designs San Francisco City Hall, Berkeley City Hall, Pasadena City Hall. He is, I think, I think this is not overstatement, he is the greatest classical architect on the West Coast. Not even in LA does someone quite approach him. He has a national, international reputation. He's given academic credentials in France. Eventually he gets it in the United States too. But that generation born in the 1870s and trained around the turn of the century meets uh, an unfortunate fate. So the depression hits in 1929. A lot of commissions dry up and the New Deal can't sponsor elaborate classical architecture. So uh, the thing that he was trained to do and thing he loved and was devoted to, the thing that he thought was really the only way to practice went out of fashion and favor. And he, he turns dark about this and his letters are peppered with laments at first about how modernism is taking over and he can't stand it. He sees it, he becomes a nativist. He sees it as Germ Germanic. He thinks it's naked and bare and meager. And he thinks that the modernists are just good publicists. They're bad architects with a good publicity campaign, basically. He, he wouldn't say it quite like that, but, and he gets darker and darker and starts campaigns to, to overturn the rise of modernism as an older man. And mind you, by the 1930s, he, he's in his sixties and this is when a lot of architects are just sitting their stride. And so right when he could have been at his, the height of his powers, he's undercut by a set of events and the rise of a new fashion, which he, he finds disgusting. At the, at the World's Fair, it's his last turn. And he, I think he has some sense that that could be the case. So he and his, his other Beaux-Arts trained architects are those who came up through his firm, take control of the fair, they make it more difficult for the younger, more modern inclined architects like William Worcester, Timothy Fluger to have their say. And they designed the last kind of Beaux-Arts fair, although it's, I think it's full of liveliness that's not typically Beaux-Arts. It's more carnivalesque in some ways. They're still trying to do it in the old manner. And the Tower of the Sun is to be the icon of the fair. But in, in going through his various efforts to design, some of which were done from Paris, for some reason he, he takes off for Paris in the middle of the fair. There's some thought that his daughter had gotten pregnant out of wedlock and he had to take care of that and went to France with her. He's designing on napkins and hotel stationery, one tower after another. And each one is less convincing than the last. He's lost his touch. He doesn't know quite how to make a tower for the new setting, even though he was such an accomplished architect and had done a bunch of towers, Hoover Tower at Stanford, Coit Tower in San Francisco, 
he he even has a little sheet that he puts those towers next to the Campanile at Berkeley with his Tower of the Sun. He thinks it's part of a lineage of great towers in the Bay Area. So he's he, it's part of his ego is at, at stake here. His legacy is at stake. He's thinking about that. And he's also thinking about this terrible thing that's happened that modernism has overtaken classicism. The grand manner is dead. And I think he kind of knows it and deep down and it's affecting his design. That's my sense of it. Is um, You mentioned before some biographies. Is If people are interested in reading more about him, is there a preferred biography you'd recommend? There's just one. It's Jeff Tillman's Arthur Brown Progressive Classicist. Okay. Gotcha. Yeah. All right. We're going to transition and talk and kind of go to what I'm going to call a rapid fire section. I'm going to throw a bunch okay. of different structures at you and you can kind of vamp or give me your thoughts on some of those that some that I find interesting and some that I just want to hear you talk about. What's a beautiful and iconic structure in the Bay Area that maybe has a boring history, quote unquote, attached to it? And then something that's maybe not terribly interesting from a design point, but also has a fascinating and maybe conflicted history. Can you think of two structures like that? Yeah, the second one first is better. Okay. Girardelli Square, I think is relatively boring, but it has a fascinating history. It involves preservation, retrofitting, re, you know, reuse, change in con- concept of what it was, a whole set of changes of what that area did to what it does now. And that transformation is really fascinating. There are bits and pieces within it that are interesting too, a little little phrases within it that have their own sub-histories, fountains and things like that. And as a public space, it's interesting because it's a new conception of public space, uh, kind of tourist-based public public space, which is part of a broad transformation of San Francisco from one type of city to another type of city. The first part of your question, I'm having more trouble figuring out. That's fine. That's a fine. Be- I, a beautiful, I, yeah. Okay. I, I Let me follow up on that because we didn't really talk yeah. about William Worcester a lot. Do you yeah. think his legacy would, or maybe his significance would be considered more if more of his buildings were in the Bay Area? Because I know he designed a lot in Stockton and that's where a lot of his iconic structures are. Do you, um, what do you think about his legacy and how he's treated within, you know, to use your term, the Pantheon? Yeah, he's an interesting figure. Probably his most important building is a ordinary house, a Gregory farmhouse. And because it's not very accessible and it's owned by the Gregory family still, it's much, it's less visible. It can't be so iconic. So it becomes more for nerds, people who are interested in the history of housing. And it's an important, very important building for the- Where is it? For the, I don't even know. I've never been there. Okay. Um, I couldn't tell you the exact town it's in, but it's, you know, it's roughly Bay Area. So- it's important for the development of the ranch house and it tells a, a part of the story of a return to the vernacular of bay region architecture in that period after the 20s i think the other problem with william worcester is he was really good as a house architect and not as accomplished when he jumped scales to institutional buildings and his firm worcester bernardi and emmons made a bunch of them and some of them are really good. Girardelli Square is one, but it doesn't stand out as an iconic piece of architecture. You don't look at it and say, wow, these were great architects. Their library in Mill Valley, you do. It's an extraordinary building. I don't know the hand behind that building. I don't know that it was Worcester's or someone else in the firm. But I do think if somebody wrote about him more, that he might become more visible. 
he he suffers from what a lot of Bay Area architects of that vintage suffer from. They were really fine house architects, and when they jumped scale, something was lost. What's your point of view on the Halliday building? Did I say that correctly? I think so. Yeah, I think it's an amazing building. It is an iconic building, and it is certainly a canonical building. People teach it all over the all over the world. We don't have his archives. His archives burned, and so Polk is a less written about figure than I think he would have been. He did other good buildings and other interesting buildings. That's probably the most experimental one he did. But the idea of detaching the wall from the structure, making a curtain wall, so to speak, glass curtain wall, is a pivotal move. I don't know the history enough to know it is the the exemplar that then led to the curtain wall, or if it is just a kind of pioneering building that we now learn about because it was ahead of its time. Do you think we can think about sports arenas in a way that evokes beauty? Sure. Yeah. Why not? Is there one in particular that uh, touches you? I think the ones that started being rebuilt in the 1980s inside of cities that were often contextual. So Camden Yards in Baltimore which was built out of brick and not they didn't just slap up brick. The brick is a pretty warm brick and they did it. They handled it nicely. It has some sensitivity to it. And the way it interacts with the rest of the city is nicely done. I think it is one of the first really great examples of of using a sports facility as an engine of gentrification and change within the city, uh, along with, say, Bilbao as a museum. It's a great example of that kind of thing. There are problems that come up with this that are more about, that are more socioeconomic that we could talk about. But if, if we're just talking about architecture and then and sports stadiums, that's one of them. There are other interesting stadiums. I think Peter Eisenman's stadium in, in Greater Phoenix is really interesting where you have a retractable field. It just inverts the idea of the retractable roof. And in that climate, it makes sense. Is that beautiful? It's astonishing in a way. It's interesting. It's a, it's a, it's a great solution to the problem. And there are others too. I think there are captivating stadiums all over the place. I think stadium design is much more interesting than it was, say, when I was a kid going to concrete bowls for to watch sports. They mm. were really, they were really the brutalist stadiums were really ugly, and they're they're all coming down. There aren't going to be any left at some point. Yeah, well, and I think my two experiences. I mean, it's for the amount of time I lived in Southern California, Dodger Stadium is not integrated in the city in the way that, you know, AT&T, or is it, is it AT&T Park or is it Oracle Park? Something like that. They changed the giant stadium name, I think, in the way that some other stadiums. I think my favorite one that I experienced was the St. Louis Cardinal Stadium, just how it's in the city. And it's mm -hmm. kind of integrated so well that you just kind of move just from the city to the stadium without a huge transition. Mm -hmm. You know, there's not a giant driveway like stadium way in Los Angeles. Um, yeah. All right. Um, just uh, two more buildings. Um, the Transamerica building, I've always had mixed feelings about. Uh, when I think of beautiful buildings, it doesn't come to mind. Um, but it's yeah. also just a masterpiece in terms of, uh, you know, built environment. Uh, how do you think about that building? I think it's less iconic than it used to be because of the tall buildings that have gone up in San Francisco. They've dwarfed it. It's not quite as visible. And that hurts it. I think it was once a very important note on the skyline 
and from that from that distance, the design, the actual design, the handling of concrete, the handling of the fenestration doesn't quite come out. So as an icon, it worked quite well, I thought. Up close, it's like a lot of the unsociable buildings of that period. They don't interact with the street in a graceful way at all. And I don't mean just aesthetically, I mean socially, right? So that they don't allow people in and out. They're not, they're impermeable. They're disagreeable with the life of the city. Those kinds of buildings, you know, if I, as a historian, I would not say this, but as a human, I can say they, they disappoint me. Yeah. And we have new buildings going up like that all over the place. Buildings that just don't allow people to interact from the street wall. They become a formidable or forbidding street wall. And that's not what buildings should do, I think, most of the time. Yeah. Well, one, the last one I want to ask you about, because it has a personal uh, relationship to me, is my alma mater, San Francisco State, down there in the corner by Daly City. So it has some, I didn't appreciate it when I was there, but those big brutalist buildings that are part of that campus. You know, I, I, I just always thought they were bleak and I've, I've, I've come around a little bit to brutalism. <laughs> it's kind of a, it's kind of a hard, a hard uh, architectural design movement to find appreciation for. Do you have any appreciation for brutalism as a movement? Yes, I do. I, I think people are making their peace with brutalism increasingly. It's easy to have fun with it. Bad brutalism is as bad as any bad moment in architecture but there is a gem of a brutalist building in san francisco and it's the san francisco art institute the architect of it had worked a little bit with le corbusier and came out here he just died actually i'm forgetting blanking on his name but it is a it is a really really fine fine example of brutalism as good as i've seen on the west coast and certainly it rivals the best on the east coast he had great touch, and you don't think of brutalism having touch. You think of it as having a fist, a gauntleted fist. But no, it's this. This is a building with touch, a great sense of light, and how to deliver light through a building, a wonderful sense of flow, how to use rooftops. Le Corbusier had an idea of some, something he called the fifth facade. If you could activate the roof, then not only would you have another interactive site on a building, it might become the primary facade once we turn into an aerial culture. He thought people would be flying into buildings rather than driving <laughs> up to them. And I think this architect activated the roof in a wonderful way. So that's a great example. I don't know the SF State buildings well. And I do think brutalism on the West Coast generally is not as interesting as what you see in especially New England or New York. The Paul Rudolph stuff, for instance, is, or Connecticut. Paul Rudolph, he was a master of the medium. And I don't know that there was another master out here. Maybe Mario Ciampi. Do you know him or Ciampi? No, I don't. He did, the, he did the original Berkeley Art Museum, which is a kind of concrete rift on the Guggenheim, but fractured. So there's a, a set of movements up a series of terraces or down, as the case might be, where you view art. And it it's a lovely, lovely building, maybe not so good for showing art, but a lovely, lovely, lovely building, just as pure architecture and pure form. It's no longer a museum. Uh, it's now the university took it over and did something else with it. And there's a new art museum, which is fine for looking at art, better for looking at art, but maybe not as interesting a building. Absolutely. I want to take a 20,000 per perspective to close. 
And I'm curious, I always like to ask people their perspective on California history from their discipline. So in the course of your work, writing your books and conducting your research, how has that research affected how you see the history of the state? I'm trying to think about what's most surprising, the things that have surprised me, because I'm not a Californian, and I've only been here for since 2004, so 20 years. It's not a long time to be in a place, especially if you're writing about other things. So sometimes my head is not in California, even though my body is. Yeah. So the surprising things, you know, the some of the disjunctions between the very liberal cities and the not so liberal spine of the state that's agricultural is interesting to me. How desiccated this central spine is, that central valley, that it's sinking because of overpiping of water. These are surprising, surprising things that are the largest agricultural belt in our country is ecologically not so far from disaster. And some would say already in a state of disaster. And it's changed so much even since I've been here. The millions of acres cultivating almonds, for instance, I will drive through places I've been 10 years ago and see entire almond fields have, have, have uh, sprouted up. And that is, they're resource intensive, and I'm not speaking against almonds because I know pound for pound, they're a great source of protein and other and fats and other things. They're a good source of calories for how much water we put into them. And you know, some, of the, some of the comparisons you'll hear, broccoli takes just a fraction of the water that, that almonds do, but you can't live on broccoli the way you can on almonds. Anyway, I'm not arguing for broccoli or for almonds, but <laughs> But these sorts of these sorts of ideas that somehow our food supply is secure when really it's not. And California is so central to that story. The water rights issues are really huge. They don't they don't affect my work. My work isn't on that stuff, but it's it's in the back of my mind all the time. And I do think if I were a younger scholar starting out, I might think more about those sorts of issues and write more about them. But I, I think I have to leave that to other people who are going to have a, an earlier start at thinking through them and will get the literature under their belts. And I don't teach any of that stuff. So one of the best ways to learn is to teach something. It's very hard to, for me to teach that stuff in an architecture department. In a landscape architecture department, I could. Absolutely. It would be harder here. Yeah. Well, to close, uh, as always the same, what are a few books you'd recommend to listeners either about topics we discussed or about topics that interest you? Yeah. You know, one of the things I've been doing is going back to books that were read a long time ago and trying to learn from them again, because oftentimes forgotten books contain wisdom that we've forgotten and we recycle it without knowing. We, we come back to the questions again without knowing. And so some of the books that I read from my my last book have altered the way I've thought. So I'll, I'll talk about them. These are not going to be new books and they're going to be old books. So one of them is by a guy named Irving Goffman and it's about social interaction and I'll get the, the full name about it. Irving Goffman was a great sociologist, Canadian, who he, I'm trying to find this as we talk, yeah. it's called well, there's one called Interaction Ritual that I think is really interesting. But he's he's one of the most cited sociologists of all time, I think, after Foucault. He's right up there, and yet we've forgotten about him, almost like he's uh, generationally lost. 
Yeah, I don't and, even recognize the name to be honest with you. Yeah, he wrote he wrote about the everyday and he wrote about interactions in everyday life and he has just a wonderful way of talking about these things. And then the second source that really I think reshaped me was a guy named Norbert Elias who is well read, often read still, but by very particular people. He wrote about everyday habits and manners. So he looked at early so late medieval etiquette guides and he would reconstruct why it is that we use silverware and how the habits around the food table came up and I would bring his books home and um, read sections of it to my kids at dinner and I'd say if we were doing this in 1500 and you didn't like the meat you would take it and do this with it you'd throw it into the corner for the dog or we wouldn't have forks. We'd be having a large piece of stale bread on which we were putting our meat. And we would go into the meat with our hands, but we would never put anything back into the meat. There were all sorts of rules around it. And so the idea that we live in a world of unwritten rules that were largely forged hundreds of years ago in one way or another, why forks are the shape they are, why knives are the shape, all these things we live in the presence of the past all the time. And that book brought that, brings that home really vividly for me. And then the last book that I think really influenced my way of thinking is by a guy named Bruno Latour. Any of his work will do, but he has, he has an essay. I'm going to forget the name of it, but it's on, it's on, it starts with this meditation on the door. And he says, what an incredible invention a door handle is and a door is. You think of it as a tool or as a machine for doing something, it's incredible. Otherwise, without a door, a simple hinged door, you would have to break a hole in a wall, step through it, and then reconstruct the wall every time you wanted to get from one side of it to, to the other. The hinge allows us to do that with almost no work. And yet, certain types of door handles are hard for some people to handle, people with arthritis, young people, older people in wheelchairs. And so some technologies discriminate without us necessarily meaning to. So there are all sorts of terms in which we, we use the everyday world, which is something I'm interested in, in unconsciously in, in ways that alter society and the structure of society without knowing it. And it, those things are revelatory for me. Well, I really appreciate you taking the time. I wish we had more time to talk about uh, your book on memorials. I will admit I'm only halfway through that one, but I really appreciate your work. And I'm curious kind of where you're moving next in your research. What's your next project? I have no idea. You know, I step, <laughs> I step back from this book and I, I want to do something unlike anything I've done before in terms of, not just in terms of topic, but in terms of what it does in the world. So I don't want to, most books are contributions to a field. 99.9% of books are contributions. And I want to do something other than a contribution. And I'm not sure quite what that is yet. I do have a book coming out this spring, but it's an edited volume called Breaking the Bronze Ceiling. And it's about women in memorials. And so I'm excited for that. And after that, I think I'm going to, I'm going to let the field stay fallow for a little while and see what what grows and then maybe cultivate the weeds. That's that's a wonderful way to approach it. I, I appreciate you talking with me. This has been a lot of fun. And thank you so much for the work that you do. Thanks for the invite. Good luck to you. 
Thanks for listening, everyone. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider supporting us by either giving us a rating and review or by making a financial contribution at our Patreon page, which is www.patreon.com slash historyofcalifornia. We'll see you next time.